0: G'day humans, welcome to the show that doesn't deal in absolutes, that doesn't deal in blacks and whites. So many shows, so many politicians, so many commentators, so much of your social media feed expects either your agreement or disagreement, either your furious love or your furious anger. I do not. I ask only that we give each other the benefit of the doubt that we wrestle with ideas we reject, as well as those we think are right. Let's escape the dogmas of conventional wisdom. Let's have conversations that straddle the cultural divide and make us all just a little uncomfortable. Well, this is very exciting... This is the first time in the history of Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps that we've had a return guest. Oh, Mr. Berkman. Oh, Mr. Oliver Berkman. I'm such a fan of Oliver Berkman's. Uh, He's a Guardian columnist who lives in New York City. I fell in love with him when I read his book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which is almost a decade old by now. And I'm ashamed to say that when I spoke with Oliver recently, I didn't realize that he had just finished his Guardian column. Uh, He has had this column where he's basically done sort of essentially self-help, pop psychology, life hacking, time management, spiritual guardianship (laughs) columns uh, for as long as I've been aware of him, I suppose a couple of decades. And his last one was in September of 2020, um, I didn't notice them slip out of the world into the great ether beyond, but I I do now note that I have been missing them without even knowing it. He also does occasional uh, radio shows for BBC Radio 4 called things like Oliver Berkman is Busy with subtitles like In Praise of Idleness and Addicted to Busy. But if you haven't heard him before, I do encourage you to go back and listen to the, I think it was probably the second episode ever of Uncomfortable Conversations that he was on, uh, because we don't rehash all of that here. What we get into here specifically is time management. Uh, He's got a new book out. uh, Oh, by the way, there's another book that you can get of his called Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done, but that's actually a collection of his columns for the Guardian newspaper, most of which you can get online online. Uh, anyway for free but his new book is called Four Thousand weeks time management for mortals it'll be released in the u.s and canada on the 10th of august and the uk australia and new zealand uh, a few weeks later i can't wait to read it i am sure that you will love it i want you to listen to and appreciate this conversation between me and the one and only oliver berkman I was going to say, why do we need another time management book? But I suspect it's not actually a time management book. Or is
1: it? (laughs) I mean, uh, I think what it is, is my attempt to um, talk about time management in the context of uh, the big... You know, the the ultimate time management problem, which is that our lives are finite and we don't have that much time. And, um, you know, I think what I start by saying in the book is that um, on some level, time management should be everyone's chief concern. Right. That's sort of all life is in a way. But that's not how we've come to think about that phrase, time management or or that other phrase, uh, productivity. Um, they they tend to mean something much sort of narrower and kind of dull. And so I wanted to reconnect the question of how you schedule your day and think about your daily time with the, you know, the real questions of what's at stake. Mm. There's an enormous amount of sort of uh,
0: an irritatingly, I mean, it reminded me a little bit of your of your earlier books in the sense that that it strikes me as a pushback against a very irritating sort of positivity cult around time management like i've tried listening over the past couple of years to some very celebrated books about this sort of thing and the 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 people whom silicon valley tech heads seem to be really inspired by can quite often be really off-putting to me in the sense that you know, if I listen to an audio book and they're reading it themselves, they're like, if Henry Ford could be indistractable, you can be indistractable, too. And the focus of your mind can. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, just pour me a cup of tea. And, like, <laughs> I just, want, you know, I just want to just want to go and walk the dog. Why? Like, is, is that partly the motivation for coming at this from a different angle?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, I'm I'm always happy to sort of throw some curmudgeonly cold water on, on any of that kind of kind of stuff. I think to get a bit more precise, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that um a huge amount of this advice actually ends up making matters worse. And it does this because it subtly and not necessarily deliberately encourages us to try to deny our limitations, to try to, to carry on avoiding facing up to the fact of how little time we have, how relatively small a number of things we're going to have time for, how little control we have over how life in the world uh, and, and in our lives unfolds. So, you know, if in, in a world of sort of effectively infinite inputs, the number of emails you can receive, the number of demands your boss can make of you, the number of Ambitions you might have for your life, or businesses that you wanted to launch, wh- whatever it is, in a world where all that is effectively infinite, if you get more and more like efficient and optimized at at processing the stuff, you're you're not you're never going to get on top of it all, right? Because it's infinite, mm. you're never going to um, be in the position of calm control that you're being led to believe you're you're heading to. Um, you're just going to get more and more rushed, and for other reasons that we can talk about, you know. Also, end up focusing less and less on the things that you value uh, the most yourself and I sort of trace this idea through all sorts of different areas we can talk about if you want but like the basic sort of governing idea I guess is just that like we are these radically limited radically finite beings and if you do all you can to sort of not confront that and not feel it then you're going to end up not spending your life on what matters the most to you. Mm. If you kind of can go through the discomfort of facing it, it's not necessarily pleasant at first. It's actually incredibly empowering, not scary. And, um, you know, it's the it, it, it enables you to sort of get some purchase on life and make good decisions about how you're going to spend your time and sort of stop worrying about the fact that you're not going to get through the infinite to-do list because that's mathematically impossible
0: you, you just said it's not scary oliver what's
1: not scary <laughs> well i'm a bit i'm saying that partly uh out of insecurity because i'm a little bit concerned if you write a book uh, you title a book four thousand weeks um that you know i'm i want to shock people that that is the length in approximately in weeks of an 80 year uh lifespan but i don't want and i don't think if you read the book you're going to end up doing this but i don't want people to think that you know what you then have to do is go through your the remainder of your life you know in a sort of white knuckle incredibly stressed out attempt to seize the day and um you know <laughs> uh you only live once you know there's a kind of there's an attitude there which is actually just as bad as the attitude that says you've got all the time in the world and you can do absolutely everything which is the which is this kind of approach that you've got to sort of incredibly self-consciously try to mm. you know spend every weekend live every day or, whatever. Yeah. Right, or right. live
0: every day as if it was your last I always thought that was right. the most curiously li- like I've never understood that piece of advice like <laughs> obviously if I if I knew that I wasn't going to be here after today I'd do all kinds of incredibly irresponsible things that have no heed for the future but I care about my future so I don't like I'd be much <laughs> likely to do something that was going to kill me if I knew that I was going <laughs> to die tomorrow anyway <laughs> if it was really fun yes no uh, absolutely and so yeah. I don't
1: want to you know it's not that kind of like ramping up the ramping up the internal anxiety, what I'm trying to argue over the course of the book with hopefully lots of sort of practical implementations as well, not just a philosophical argument, is that, um, you know, the problem here is not that we are finite. The problem is that we're sort of systematically trying to do more or control things more than we actually can. And that if you can sort of fall back into reality and so for example, you know if you can understand that the, the, the key skill of time management is um, figuring out what to neglect, mm. uh, it's been called by you know, becoming a better procrastinator, somebody I quote in the book, right? This idea that, not, that if you can sort of come to terms with that idea of figuring out, okay, it's going to be a matter of failing in certain roles, it's going to be a matter of giving up certain ambitions, disappointing certain people. That's built in. That's not because you haven't found the right technique or you haven't put enough effort into it. That's just built into the human condition. If you can sort of let yourself fall into that reality, it's incredibly freeing and liberating because, because then you can, then, then you can focus your time and attention on some of the things that matter the most. And you can sort of, give up trying to do something that you were never going to do in the first place. (laughs)
0: That's, that's right. Yes, I do. I mean, there are so many places to go with that. One, one thought that I, that I have is the, I, I was I was talking to my therapist recently. It sounds I always sound very American when I was talking to my therapist. But uh, during the pandemic, the hey, Australian, I'm very accustomed to that. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah the, the, the Australian government uh, provided additional uh, Medicare subsidised therapy sessions under the universal healthcare system in Australia. You still have to pay a big uh, a big copay, but it's uh, it's been great. So I was talking to him about about this sort of stuff and he was i've just bought my first house and so we're just about to move in next week and it's all congratulations it's a, thank you it's a. it's but as you can imagine it's been a, it's a huge headache and the moment the pandemic was over there was a massive spike in house prices and it was impossible to buy a place and everything was going through the roof and it was all terribly stressful and there were all these things that i had to do and the therapist said and i was beating myself up for not having gotten them done and he said well when do they need to when do they really need to have been done by and I said well you know the end of the month and he said will you get them done by the end of the month and I said yeah but I'll end up scrambling on the 31st and they'll all end up getting done at the final second and he was like well if that's going to happen anyway and you know that that's going to happen and that's the way you live your life and that's the way you organize your time why don't you not beat yourself up about it until the thirty first, and then just do that? Because either, either you're going to be frustrated about it every day and then do it, or mm. you can just not be frustrated about it every day and then do it that way. Or you could do it now. But if you're not going to do it now, at least choose not to do it now. And I loved that sense of that sense of empowerment of choosing the not.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, he, he, it sounds very wise, like very wise advice. I mean, I think you know we spend. In different ways, but like we're spending so much of our energy and our time to some extent trying to feel certain that things are going to unfold in the way that we feel we need them to unfold. And then the sort of extreme, you know, I write in the book about coming from a family of compulsive planners who, you know, there was an Onion story a few years ago, which uh, with the headline, Dad Suggests Arriving at Airport 14 Hours Early, which was. (laughs) <laughs> Basically, like, could have just been ripped from the true headlines of my upbringing with only a little mm. exaggeration. Um, this this idea that like one way that we respond to this stuff is, is to, to the sort of situation of not being able to know what's going to happen next, right? Because literally anything could always happen at any moment in the future. It's kind of built into the notion of the future. Mm. So instead, we're constantly trying to sort of lay down these frameworks that are going to guarantee that things will turn out the way we want. And one way that people do this, people like me, is by sort of being compulsive planners and trying to sort of schedule everything in advance. Because it's completely ultimately impossible because the future hasn't happened yet. Your attempt to do this, to exert this kind of control is always running into the the fact that you actually can't be certain about what's going to happen. So you're always on this slight sort of knife edge about not knowing how things are going to go. you know it I'm, I'm sort of drifting away from the yeah. very good point that you were making about about like not stressing in advance about stressing later on or whatever but but it in all these different ways it's like if to the extent that you can relax into the fact that nobody ever knows what's coming next you can make good preparations and you can have uh, sort of contingency plans but you can't actually succeed in achieving a feeling of control uh, in, in achieving a feeling of certainty about like what's going to happen in the mm. next minute? Mm. There's something very relaxing about seeing the truth of that. I think. Are you the fourteen hours early at the airport guy too? No, and now I'm feeling a bit bad towards my father uh, <laughs> if he's listening to this. It wouldn't. He wouldn't. It wouldn't literally be fourteen hours. But, no, I know um, what you mean. But I, my my grandfather <laughs> I,
0: was like that. My grandfather would get to the uh, get to the airport. You know, a a good half hour, before he'd be in the terminal a good half hour before the earliest time that the airline tells you to arrive, which used to be two hours and then became three hours. And then for some flights to the States, I think now it's four hours or something. And so I would, I would be, and this was only in New Zealand and I'd just be flying back to Australia. And, you know, being the inveterate, uh, obnoxious international jet setter that I was, I was the type of person who arrives just at the nick of time and tries to time it so that you're the last person just walking onto the plane. Uh, unless I specifically wanted to go to the lounge and get some work done or something. Uh, and so I would just lie to him when he was giving me a lift to the airport about what time the <laughs> flight, the plane was, I would do the mental calculation about when, it, cause he would not let me, I would say, just drop me off there like an hour and 15 minutes before the flight. And he'd be like, no, they say two hours. And so, you know, three and a half hours before the flight, he'd be walk, pacing around his apartment Uh, with his car keys in his hand saying, come on, come on, mate, let's go. Let's not be late. (laughs) He's not even travelling. He's not even at any risk of missing the plane. But it just landed for him. It would just whip him up into a state of of anxiety. And I never understood that. Who wants to be sitting? I mean... I, my family members are like this as well. I have this difference with, with my own brother. Like, Who wants to be sitting at an, an airport gate? But there are people for whom the sensation of being hurried and the fear of missing the plane, even if it's unfounded, is such a bad feeling that they will avoid that feeling at the cost of wasting two hours of their life sitting in an incredibly unpleasant uh, airport gate.
1: I totally relate to this. I mean, I am, I am not the person who arrives 14 hours early at the airport, but I am a person who has had to struggle with wanting to. I'm not the person who can sort of easily, um, easily get over that. No, it's been, it's been, you know, that's the, you write books about the things you struggle with. And that the part of this book that is about compulsive planning and not trying to, uh, ask too much of your certainty about the future is, um, is totally personal. Um, what do I do at airports? I, I leave, um, Probably more time than is strictly necessary, but I try to sort of um, push myself to not leave (laughs) four hours when it isn't uh, when it isn't necessary. I think one of the things that this may be partly also with your grandfather, it may be generational in terms of how, of course, um, in terms of how sort of special flying is. Um, But one thing I always find it's very frustrating is that I I don't. I try not to get um, early in the morning flights because. I know I will. My sleep will be interrupted through the night as I wake up to, to out of concern that I might have missed the flight. All um, mm. or, or because on some deep level, uh, something in me thinks that it's life or death if uh, if I mm. miss mm. That, if I meet, re, meet that plane or not. And you know that that's just not true. So it, there are these certain kinds of things that we, in w- with which we invest this kind of level of it it's so important to know that they're going to work out fine and yeah. if you can and it happens in other contexts as well you know to the extent that you can relax that and and sort of drop the demand obviously this is partly a function of privilege you know it always makes a big difference that if you have enough money in the bank that you could always go and stay in a hotel somewhere for a night that's is a sort of a complete game changer when it comes mm. to things like travel and international trips right you're not sort of having to make that uh connection somewhere because otherwise you're literally just on the street well yeah
0: i mean it totally depends and and yeah i have had i have found myself caught out in situations like when my grandmother died in new zealand and i didn't leave maximum amount of time to get well i did actually leave quite a lot of time to get to jfk to go to her funeral in new zealand uh the air train broke at jfk and the you people were just being dumped out of whatever it was, the Long Island Railroad or uh, or, or the, the A train um onto the street and they were scrambling to get buses and the line the li- I mean the line was more than you know, it would have been more than four hundred meters long. And there were just it was gonna take hours and hours and hours and hours. And I just went to the front of to the front of the line and I just said, I'm so sorry. My my grandmother died in New Zealand. And I'm going to a funeral and I just pushed in front of someone and got on <laughs> and got on the bus it's and and a and made solid it. Solid American approach. I'm talking about yeah. right <laughs> Exactly. And in that case, you absolutely have to make the flight. But yes, ninety five percent of the time, you're not even gonna have to pay for a uh, an overnight hotel. I mean you might pay a a change fee if the airline is feeling particularly nasty.
1: But if you're flying from Auckland to Sydney, there's going to be another flight in two hours. So, <clears throat> and there's <clears> a sort of a, there's a fear. sort of broader point here, you know, that goes way beyond air travel. I think I quote in the book, um, uh, Krishna Murti, the the spiritual teacher who was mm. sort of very big in the the 60s and 70s, um, uh, sort of slightly ostentatiously revealing his secret, the secret his secret to happiness, at a meeting in. California uh, in uh, in the 1970s, where he said that um, he asked, you know, the assembled audience if they wanted to know his secret. And then he said, I don't mind what happens. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's lots of ways of interpreting this. There's ways of interpreting it as sort of overly passive and sort of apolitical. And maybe we should mind about all sorts of things that are happening in the world. But there is just this sense of like, if you can live not in a state of Constantly waiting to see if the next minute or hour um, meets your criteria for it, uh, mm. you 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 sort of it's sort of a superpower. Um, certainly I mean, not claiming that I do that all the time, but uh, it's it's sort of a superpower because you realise how much stress and anxiety is not that you need things to go a certain way, but that you need them. Not that you need particular things to happen necessarily, but that you sort of need to feel that uh, you're in control of how. Uh, events are unfolding.
0: It's so interesting that you just allude to your sense that you're, uh, you know, people's guilt about not being uh, full of anxiety about what's going to happen. It, in fact, since we last spoke, I've used your your wisdom, Oliver, quite a lot in dealing with, our, with my thinking about the pandemic in the sense that... It was specifically our conversation, and if, if listeners haven't heard our first conversation, you really should. It's great. Um, specifically in the context of um, spending so much time worried about big, abstract, distant events and our political hot takes on things that don't actually impact our lives—you uh, know, U.S. politics being an obvious example for especially for non-Americans—and uh, not enough time focused on the here and now. And I still find people really. uh uh, having a hard time grasping the seeming paradox of of both allowing yourself to not care quite so much about things that don't impact you and also being a good person who is engaged as a citizen like i tweeted i'm just looking for it i tweeted it two days ago (laughs) (laughs) um i tweeted if you're finding yourself furious with your political leaders and the lockdown this is to my Australian audience, obviously. Uh, remember, they're human beings doing their best. Every policy has flaws. Australia's done well. Leave the political argy-bargy to journos and polys and go for a sunset walk with your kids. And I was inundated with negative messages saying that I'm, oh, very easy for you to say, like, uh, you, yeah. know, or, yeah. you know, or, you know, these people are doing, uh, you know, these we're holding people to account and you're encouraging us, you're encouraging political apathy. Uh, someone wrote a democracy needs to hold its politicians feet to the fire not to look away. And like, I know people who've lost family members and
1: right. You know, I was like, you're kind of missing the point. Yeah. Although you totally were being uh, provocative as well. I suspect, but anyway, (laughs) (laughs) no, I mean, (laughs) I think, I think, um, no, I mean, yes. Right. The, 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 there are various different points here. I mean, one is that, um, a crucial one I think is that, you know, a lot of people are not having the impact that they believe they're having right there's this, there's this idea that, that the the mere exertion of emotional energy on something is somehow a good in itself and i think that um social media especially really encourages this really makes you feel like you're you know the, the very act of tweeting the very act of scrolling through a news feed is somehow much more interactive than just watching tv news and i think that um you know, people are misled into thinking that that their that that their emoting is is really helping. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't there aren't contexts in which you know uh, a politician's constituents can can move the needle in by um, you know conveying their anger at what's happening. It's just that we're sort of there. It's more an exception to the rule, especially when it's yeah, like on the other side of the globe. All that's going to happen there is that you sort of. Uh, just dissipate what what capacity you have for, for care um, mm. over so many different issues. There's a, a Canadian uh, writer, blogger called David Kane, whose work I follow and really uh, enjoy, who I think it's his, he has this, he talks about some of this in the context of a, some metaphor that I'm going to get wrong, but like <laughs> as, um, to do with what, you know, it's to do with like sort of the difference between water, sort of light rain spreading right across a whole country uh, versus sort of pouring a lot of uh, water concentrated into one place. Mm -hmm. There'd be a real case for saying, you know, if you can bring yourself to do it, there's a real case for saying, like, I'm going to really care about this issue and I'm going to deliberately sort of try to not care about all the other ones because that way I might have a real effect. This idea, you know, through social media especially, we are asked to care about you know far more stuff than anyone in history has ever been forced to ask to care about to a sort of crazy degree um i think on some level we just have to accept that we're not constituted to um to exist on that sort of mm. scale and that if we do want to be good citizens and spend some portion of our time making the world a better place you are far better advised to like pick a pick a topic mm. and get properly <laughs> stuck in locally uh uh, as well as nationally internationally than to sort of emit this kind of not that I don't do it too, but you know, <laughs> yeah. sort of emit this sort of general uh uh sort of anger and and angst um and I mean I like
0: I like yeah. that analogy about the rain. was it how do you spell Kane? K-A-N-E. C-A-I-N. His blog is Raptitude. Oh the Raptitude guy, yes, wonderful. Um I like that analogy about you know directing your torrential downpour onto one thing rather than sprinkling uh, it, it gently across a, a huge field. But I think social media is even worse in the sense that it doesn't sprinkle gently over a field. It encourages you to join whichever torrential fire hose is <laughs> happening in, the mo- in this instant, right? And then yeah. you're, j- you're just jumping from one haphazard fire hose to the other, so the yeah. intensity is is extremely high, but you're not really in possession of any metrics by which you're determining where your energies are going to be directed. You're just getting buffeted around by algorithms. So you're getting really, really outraged about the Victorian premier one day, and then you're getting really, really outraged by the federal health minister the other day, and then you're getting really, mm-hmm. really outraged by transgender people at the olympics the third day and it's you know
1: you don't there's no right you're there's not no even there's, really right, in control of your own yeah your own anger. plus yes plus you then are not actually plus your sort of expostulations that you do in response to this are not efficacious and i think there's something else that's been really notable to me in terms of covid especially i mean goodness knows i don't want to sound like i'm uh um coming to the rescue of to the aid of boris johnson or anything but like we have this situation, which is completely unprecedented, which is totally unpredictable in many ways. Um, I, I'm not at all suggesting that that politicians couldn't have done better jobs of dealing with it, because in other countries they they have done a better job. But you do get this kind of centrifugal force online, where it all has everyone has to be completely terrible or completely on the side of the angels, and you notice this with COVID. This this notion that like every single death from COVID is effectively is blood on the hands of the, Mm. of the politicians who've mismanaged it as if a better management in that context would have, would have eliminated the death toll entirely. Mm. When actually it, you know, it may be, there may be differences between countries that are to do with their existing health systems and their existing class structure and all sorts of, all sorts of factors that, that are not sort of, but we, again, it's this, very strong desire to sort of find specific people and and hold them deeply responsible now. Yeah, yeah, I think Boris Johnson has a lot to be held responsible for. I mean, I, I case, was but, you
0: know <clears throat> I was actually quite confronted when reading online a, a Twitter thread from a conservative who was saying like, how different do you think the US's death toll would have been if if Hillary Clinton had been the president instead of Donald Trump? Like, let's actually mm-hmm. go through it. And he made a quite persuasive case that yes, Trump bungled it. But was the u s going to close its borders to the entire world immediately the way that Australia and New Zealand did, and was that possible? Probably not no no president would have done would have gone would have turned the dial up to eleven in March of twenty twenty the way that uh that smaller more remote countries would have even if they had was there enough uh, of the disease circulating of the infection dis- circulating already like in the Pacific Northwest that it probably would have gotten out of hand. You know, probably would Hillary Clinton have been able to build up a contact tracing effort fast enough to get on top of it, given that it was probably two months ahead of where it was in Australia? You know, probably not. Uh, And so, you know, actually going through it, looking at the looking at the the death rate in places like Germany per capita and, you know, which which a lot of Americans look to as being a a paragon of uh, of small L liberal uh, social democratic policy is run by a very pragmatic you know doctorate in science woman Mm -hmm. Uh, you know even even there it's gotten out of out of control so it's it did sort of make me think yeah actually politicians are not the supermen we require them we demand them to be but we're wondering yeah yeah, a little bit off No, no
1: no it reminds me it does remind me a little bit just oh yes let's let's go back but like you know people often say that one of the motivations for conspiracy theorism is the idea that um it's actually more comforting to think that there's an evil cabal of people directing yeah. um, events yeah. than to accept that they are actually as as random and uncontrollable as, and chaotic as mm, they mm. seem to be. And there's something of the same thing in that, right? I mean, that the idea that there is something comforting about, like, the, explaining this by the fact that you know we just got unlucky by having an evil person in charge mm, at that mm. time um and it's harder to i mean you know there are all sorts of other reasons systemic in the american healthcare system blah 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 but um you know it's very comforting to be able to look at one person and say "If it hadn't been for them
0: yeah it's and in in terms of in terms of how random uh the, the benefits and downsides of history can be, I mean, one amazing thing that Australians never talk about, which I wish we would pay closer heed to, is that during, from sort of December of 2019 through to February of 2020, uh, there were cases that were, you know, of, of this unknown virus that were leaving China and seeding into, seeding all over the world. And Australia and China have extremely high levels of trade and uh, and and human, you know, cross-cultural uh, transportation and tons of Chinese tourists come to Australia. Well, what was happening between December of 2019 and February of 2020 in Australia? The continent was on fire.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nobody was coming. The bushfires were right. raging. The, the worst natural disaster in Australian, in Australia in generations was taking place. It was all over the news, all over the world, the blood-red skies in Sydney. Yeah. Visitors were cancelling their trips in droves from the United States and Europe and China. And I do wonder, this was raised to me by an epidemiologist, you know, would we have been able to get on top of it the way that we did in March and April if the cases had been arriving in December and January instead of starting to arrive in February? Uh, so...
1: Completely random, yeah. yeah, Completely random. You
0: know, maybe maybe Australia got lucky, um, and then made some good decisions. Uh, I want to come back to you saying to to your point about scary. I, I, the the scariness of mortality is something well known. But there's another thing that's scary about trying to get your shit in order, which is when you actually face up to big, challenging projects that represent things you really want to accomplish with your life that's scarier than just scrolling twitter
1: or procrastinating and i'm wondering how you get around that yeah it's a big challenge i mean one of the one of the points i try to sort of go into is this idea like i don't want to let so um silicon valley off the hook at all for the kind of Uh, economy of distraction that they've uh, built to sort of mine our attention against our will. But, but, you know, we do have to, it only works because we play along on some level, right? It only works because we are in the market to uh, turn away from, from whatever it was we were focused on. And so I try to really go into this on the face of it, mysterious question, you know, why is it that something you really want to do, a work project, creative project, um, uh it can be uh, nurturing a relationship all sorts of things why is it so frequently that it's those things that you then when it comes to the crunch kind of don't want to do and are kind of very willing to distract yourself from with uh ready-made digital and other kinds of of distraction and you know i i sort of explore various people writing about this and and uh it begins to get a bit less mysterious, really, right? I think it's just that it, it's a rather obvious point in a certain way that, that things that we care about um, inevitably bring us into a different kind of confrontation with our finitude, with our limited time and our limited control, our limited capacities, because it's when you're trying to write the chapter of your novel that you have to face the possibility that, you don't have what it takes or that it won't be received in the way that you hope Um, or that, you know, you have to be putting something else really valuable in your life aside in order to spend the time on it. You're sort of brought into a confrontation with the feeling that like life isn't a dress rehearsal, that this is it. And uh, you're choosing to do this now with your time and you don't know for sure how it's going to turn out. And I think that's all kind of synonymous with, meaning, right? I can't imagine what a meaningful activity would be if you could be absolutely certain of how it was going to go, if it didn't bring you up against your edge in any way at all. Um uh, you know, that that that's almost the definition of a meaningless uh activity. So that's it's interesting, kind of- but I, I can imagine a meaningful activity <clears throat> where although you don't know where
0: it's gonna go, everywhere where it could go is desirable and therefore you slip towards it frictionlessly but no meaningful activities in my life seem to have that feature <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean I think it's just because you know uh well I mean I what are you thinking of I mean what what are you uh, I suppose
0: I'm thinking of creative and professional uh things but even personal things you know so like do do I want to improve my communication with my partner around household chores. Yes. Is that scary and annoying? Yes. You know, do I want to break the back of this writing project, this TV writing project that I've got burning inside me that the muse wants to let out but I don't seem to have time to do? Yes. But is that scary? Yes. But all of the – I suppose in the creative case there is a perfectionistic fear that once you put it down on paper, it's not going to be as good as it is in your head, and so you don't want to you don't want to make it real because the perfect version that doesn't exist is preferable to the real version that is imperfect. Um, but that can't apply to all
1: big challenges, surely? No, I don't think those specific criteria do, and I don't think I'm only talking about big challenges here. But it, I think there is a sort of inherent discomfort in being absolutely present some a lot of the time it manifests as boredom right i mean i think that's um it's not necessarily that you're sitting there terrified about how something's going to go it's that feeling that you're sort of at the mercy of reality in in some way um you can't think of anything to do that's one reason people get bored or you're into the sixth hour of solo parenting of a small child who you love deeply but at the same time you know there is no there's no escape Uh, Mm. In that kind of context. And there's something constraining about the idea of there being no escape, even if nothing is uh, sort of overtly negative about the experience. There's a psychotherapist who I quote, who called Bruce Tift, who wrote a great book called Already Free, which is a combination of sort of Buddhist perspectives and psychotherapeutic perspectives. And he just talks about this sort of universal feeling of being sort of constrained by reality that uh, I think, um, you know, almost all of us have in one way or another, a lot of the time. And it can be anything from being stuck in a traffic jam that you can't make move at the speed you you wish, um, trying to write a difficult creative piece of creative writing that you don't know if you're going to be able to do it, or just something as simple as, you know, not, not being able to, not being able to not be doing the bit of, parenting or partner partnering Mm. or whatever it is that you're doing right now even if nothing about it is negative it's just there's a sort of um there's a requirement that you sort of give yourself to it and i think that on some subconscious level there's a recognition that you are doing this with a bit of your finite time and like this is life and and i think you know this this fantasy that is encouraged by hanging out too much online where it feels like you're completely limitless and you can be anyone and do anything and find, you know, connect to information from the other side of the globe instantaneously. There's a kind of a godlike feeling to that which takes you out of this kind of constrained sense of being in in reality. This is getting pretty um Abstract at this no point. It's <laughs> so it's, I think it is the sort of underlying idea
0: I think but yeah, but th- this is why t- so much of time management is so annoying because it doesn't go abstract or deep, it just goes it flits across the surface of how you should be structuring your day when in actual fact if you if you truly analyze why the person who has a novel burning inside them hasn't written it it's not it 's not about the time is it it's about right. the stories that we tell ourselves about, I mean, I'm just trying to think as you talk about how this relates to me right now. So like I need to, and I'm not saying this because I think that, that my position is uniquely, um, is going to shine some unique insight, but other but listeners might find something in these stories which relates which they relate to so i 've got I need to set up some new bank accounts so that you know i 'm putting aside the correct amount of uh, goods and services tax in advance so that i 'm not always scrambling at the end of every quarter to pay the tax man and you know I need to structure my uh, my i suppose cash flow better now that i 've got a house. You would not believe, Oliver, how many times I managed to (laughs) procrastinate about just going onto the bloody bank website and opening an account and setting up an auto transfer of X amount per month from this account to that account. And then, like, obviously there is some pathology, there is some code that's running underneath this, which is something like, Why do I have to do this bullshit stuff? Why is the world set up in such a way and the tax office set up in such a way that the onus is on me to do this mundane chore when there are so many more pleasurable things that I'd rather be doing? There is something inherently unjust about this. And as a free man, I'm going to (laughs) assert my right not to sit down at this stupid computer and do this stupid bullshit and look up my... Bloody account number like you know what i mean like it's not it's not not time time isn't the
1: problem right i mean in another sense it is because it's to do with how you are using your time but yes i know what you mean it's not that you can't free up the time to do it in fact count you know the really self-defeating irony is that you will now have spent much more time thinking about how you ought to have done this Mm. or how you don't want to do it than it would have taken to do it yes um Yeah, (laughs) uh, that that, that desire to be the master of your time has a sort of, yeah, it it results in the opposite, which is, Mm. you know, more time of yours has been used up on something that you...
0: So how how does one take the thing that's hanging over one's head and insert it into reality and, and get it out of the way and have it done?
1: Well I sort of take a twin approach in the book. I have got a whole bunch of sort of little tips about how to sort of really scale down into something sort of a radically kind of incrementalist approach to this kind of stuff where you can do things in such tiny amounts that uh, that that you can sort of fly under the radar of these kinds of reactions. I do really truly think though that the most the biggest sort of uh the, the sort of most effective uh life hack in this area is just sort of stopping uh expecting it to feel otherwise right to sort of to to feel that you know um, th- this feeling of of pushing against constraint it's just sort of the feeling that goes with of being constrained it's just the feeling that goes with doing things that 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 matter to us in one way or another i mean your example of the bank account is a little bit different that's more like sort of life admin that um yeah i think i would definitely look at sort of doing in uh minuscule amounts on a very sort of regular basis like picking picking your three most annoying things you've been feeling guilty about and spending 45 minutes every day just plowing through those things you know yes right controlled fashion but when it comes to the bigger projects i mean When I, uh, and this is, I'm slightly borrowing from uh, Cal Newport, um, the author of the book's uh, deep work and digital minimalism here, but like he he has this way of expressing it, which is, like the thing people call writer's block, that's the feeling of writing. Like that's, that's (laughs) doing, that's doing a hard thing. And that's one example of this broader point I'm trying to make that, you know, if, if you don't if 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 you can ex- if you can be a bit more okay with the fact that it's not going to feel hugely comfortable, then suddenly it doesn't actually feel that bad at all. And there's a sort of a, this is a theme that runs throughout a lot of stuff that I've been interested in and that I've been writing about recently, which is that, you know, learning to tolerate a little bit of discomfort is a kind of a crazy superpower because th- the level of discomfort that is required to put us off doing things is so small that, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that if you can just, and I don't mean that you should sort of try to squelch it and not feel uncomfortable. I mean, if you can take sort of very generous and welcoming view to your emotions and say, look, yeah, I really feel uncomfortable. I really mm. feel reluctant to do this. This really makes me bored or resentful or scared or whatever it is. That's okay. And meanwhile, at the same time, <laughs> I'm going to, open the laptop or uh you know make the call send the email like those two things can coexist that's interesting that that almost
0: reminds me oliver of um of stephen pressfield's uh trick in his books where he names resistance with a capital r as being the thing that you're carrying around with you and the thing that crushes people's lives and people's dreams if you give it an inch uh you know the war of art have you read yeah i do i do
1: i have i have to i'm going to be honest and say i have mixed feelings about that book it's obviously so successful and meaningful to people that i'm not going to say like it's not great stuff but like i i think that can lead to a sort of a uh sort of combative inner approach that you're going to sort of go mano a mano with with, right with resistance right Um, and you know if it works for you do not let or someone listening, you know, do not let me put you off. But I mean, I think a, a, there's a way of sort of maybe it, it, there's a way of being greater there, equanimity but, towards towards, yeah, it, or, it, or it, just it, being more, yeah. It it I mean, be. not sort of, yeah, not 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 vowing to destroy resistance so much as like accepting that you're going to hang out with it. Um, I, I get Elizabeth what you're Gilbert, saying. Elizabeth, and, sorry, go, yeah. Yeah. No no, I no say Elizabeth, through, yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert in her um, in her book on creativity which is called Big Magic um <clears> has some uh analogy about how you have to sort of you have to let fear come on the road trip with you but uh there's no way you're letting it take the driver's seat you know
0: Yes, I understand. Now that I think about your temperament and Pressfield's temperament, I can totally see why there would be a mismatch
1: between you,
0: between that, and why his work wouldn't land for you. Um, uh, because because so much of your outlook on life is finding ways to be gentle with yourself and to roll with the way things are, and to uh, to sort of transcend. Uh, the our own reptilian brains uh, <laughs> flaws and and sort of make peace with them, whereas he is much more yes combative. But I I take his message as being not one of you must vanquish resistance uh, or you must eliminate resistance or you must find a way for resistance to be no part of your life, but almost the way that an alcoholic would recognize the temptation or a smoker or a gambler or something it, it that the addiction is going to be there. It's gonna be eternally vicious. You must remain eternally vigilant, and it, it's just gonna be the co-driver. It's gonna be it's gonna be in the car, but don't let it touch the wheel. <laughs> Keep it in the back seat. You know what I mean. And and that's what I get out of his his work. That by naming resistance as a thing, yeah, it's a it, when when it when it arises. Uh, I can I can distance myself from it in a way that actually doesn't feel combative because then I can go oh right I know you you're the mediocre piece of shit that prevents me from doing what I want to do so yeah. welcome uh, you know stay quiet and you know you can ride with me but I'm not going to give you any
1: power that sounds I mean that sounds extremely similar to what I'm saying and yeah. what I what I was borrowing from Elizabeth Gilbert to say and you know the other thing about this of course is like I don't think there are any fixed. Answers universal for absolutely everybody and if and if it works uh don't 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 mess with it that's mm, uh you know mm. i wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to uh pick a fight with Stephen pressfield also i think he'd just win <laughs> <wouldn't>
0: he? <laughs> um <laughs> and so let's get down to priorities and uh how one decides what one should be doing with one's time because You know, I think it's easy when we're saying, oh, you know, I've got this great novel to write and so I shouldn't be flicking through Instagram, I should be writing. But if you've got a great novel to write and you've got a TV project to pitch and you've got a podcast that you could be working on and they're all fulfilling, many creative people, many multi-hyphenates find themselves uh you know talk about the torrential downpour versus the sprinkle of rain sprinkling their rain across a lot of projects and not quite knowing exactly how to have laser focus on on any one and finding themselves terrified by the prospect of eliminating all these other things that they want to do in order to focus on one thing because what if that one thing isn't the one that they should have been focusing on how
1: do you get out of that pickle <laughs> no it's a really good question and i mean let's go further than just saying uh, what if you've got lots of other uh, fancy media projects in your life? I think it's also just like, you know, um, people in any walk of life who might be, you know, listening and feeling overstretched just to try to sort of do the five or six things that seem essential to life, right? I mean, you know, working, working, uh, parenting, whatever else, you know, it's not only we, um, I think it comes to a, a head for People like us who do creative stuff, but I think it's I think it's there on some level, um, universally. This sense that yeah. like there's more that you on some on some level must do than you can do, and the must might be because you're driven to realize certain potentials, or the must might be at the other end of the scale, like in order to not get evicted, right? I mean, it can be the whole mm. scale, right. uh, and I think what I'm trying to say sort of applies to um, all of it. I'm not just I'm not just rudely telling you to check your privilege i'm i'm saying that i think this is a universal um uh phenomenon because it's this feeling that at every level of the economic ladder and every walk of life we the large part to do with the way that the the state the way the world is and the t- technological developments you know we we are led to systematically feel like we have to do more things than we can do and the first first step in addressing that is just to see that it's like that can't be true it it, it can't be the case that you absolutely must do more than you can do. It just doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, in philosophy, they talk about "ought implies can." You can't you can't have any kind of duty to do more things than it's possible for well, you. To do. Uh, can, that's, you that's can you Can you elaborate on that?
0: Because if you're if you're a single mother with four kids and you're working three jobs, it it may be the case that you're going to get evicted if you don't keep working at those jobs, and also that you're going to neglect your kids if you do. And both of those are burningly bright priorities for you being a good parent, and not getting evicted. And so how does that how does that sit with what you just? Well, I mean,
1: I think, you know, we're into the territory now where it's very easy for me to say, but things that are easy for me to say, are not necessarily false. And I think that one of them is that, you know, if your life is making demands upon you that are literally impossible in terms of time like then they're impossible like that that's the clue is in the name and um and if that is such that you know if it would if keeping a roof over your head would require you to do more than it is possible for you to do then actually like okay you're going to lose the roof over your head it's not that's not something to be to be relaxed about but or for me to be relaxed about but it is just a sort of logical entailment and so I think that you know again at every level of 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 uh good fortune and whether whether you're doing this to keep a roof over your head or to sort of feel that you maximized your creative potential or anything else starting from this this position that um you don't need to you may the world may make impossible demands on you or you're sort of upbringing may make impossible demands on you, but you don't need to collaborate with that by thinking that you're ever actually going to find a way to do something impossible. You can sort of start from the position that says, okay, you know, have a limited amount of time. I have things that I value and I'm going to try to do as many of the things that I value in the time that I have, but I'm not going to add to the stress of the situation by by sort of beating myself up to for for not doing something that it would not be possible for me to do, there's a kind of a psychological um, uh, form of resistance going on here, like a resistance to bad and impossible demands. You may have to then still work incredibly hard, or um, you know, live a very very time pressed life. But you're not at, you're at least not. Um, collaborating with a sort of Mm. wider socioeconomic message that says like, if you just put in a bit more effort and you just keep going faster and you just find the right productivity technique, you might actually get to the top of this mountain. Um, And I think, you know, then again, to go back to the situations where it's a little bit sort of where it's a bit more about fulfillment and it is about, um, you know, uh, keeping a roof over your head. um, That too is a question of sort of, like it's it's not it it's not the advice that you should decide to not give effort to the TV project or the podcast. It's it's just a it's a it's a realization that you will not be giving um, more than a hundred percent effort in total to right. the things right. that you do. Right that that that's sort of that's fixed. So the question is, how do you make the most conscious and wise decisions about what to prioritize? And how do you sort of live with the fact that that means other things get uh, not done at all or or put off? Um, uh, and again, if you want to get onto the level of much more sort of concrete tactics, something mm. that I've found really useful is this this general idea of limiting your work in progress. I don't know if you've come across any of this sort of personal Kanban, no uh, productivity stuff that comes from this. Um, uh, workplace consultant called Jim Benson, who wrote a book called Personal Kanban, co-wrote a book called Personal Kanban. The basic idea here is just that you limit, you put a very hard upper limit on the number of um, projects that you are working on at any one time. And you can look at this at various different levels of elevation. You could talk about having only sort of 10 tasks on your to-do list at any one time. You could talk about having only two major tasks Creative projects at any one time. There are different ways of sort of uh implementing it. But this basic idea is, right? You don't you have a fixed number and you don't get to put a new one in until you've freed up a slot mm. by by moving one out. And um it's really extraordinarily powerful, you know, because it um it 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 really causes you to confront what is already true, which is that your bandwidth is limited and that you're not going to be effectively working on 50, 20 things at once. one of the problems for so many of us is that we dramatically
0: uh, um, overestimate our capacity. So the bandwidth in my brain, no matter how many times reality (laughs) teaches me how narrow my bandwidth is, in my brain it's still three times broader and deeper than it actually is in reality. And so, I I mean, you're completely right that the only times that I've been able to pull off any big, uh, you know, project is when I've done absolutely nothing else I mean forget about two things you know when I've written something that took real effort like writing an entire show to do at the Melbourne Comedy Festival for example uh, let alone writing a book I'm sure this is the same experience for you unless that's the one thing that I'm doing and I'm getting up every morning and I'm devoting you know in my case the first few hours of the day I have to do it at the beginning otherwise I get distracted and start feeling recrimination recriminations towards myself for not having gotten it done and then i fall into a cycle of procrastination but i have to be doing that thing every single work day and nothing else uh as my big creative project and yet time and time and time again including right now there are three <laughs> or four different big things that i want to do and i go all right well i'll do that one on tuesday and then i'll do this other one on thursday and before you know it uh you know i'm cleaning the kitchen
1: yeah no i totally i totally feel what you're saying i think one thing that's worth sort of noting there is that like you can and actually one thing that some of these work in progress limiting approaches naturally lead you to do is you can sort of break they lead you to sort of break things down to the right level so i don't know if i'll express this properly but like you, you can make uh progress on multiple fronts if you if you only make progress on one thing at a time but they're broken down into the smallest into the to the right size of sort of resolution right. of task right so mm. so like yes it's probably actually very effective if you can if your life permits you to just say like write that comedy set and don't do anything else significant using your creative energies until it's done mm-hmm. great but um you know, if you can break it down into, I don't know how that works with comedy sets, but let's talk about books, you know, Mm. like if you break it down into like structure the book as a, as a, as a thing, and you won't do anything else until that is done. Uh, Chapter one, you know, don't do anything else until that is done. You can, and then you can certainly alternate that with other, other tasks and big projects can flow through your, this narrow aperture that you're um, creating of, uh, you know, only a handful of, of tasks. I don't, think most people are in the position most of the time to uh sort of not have multiple irons in the fire it's just that what happens if you don't do something to structure that to sort of close off most of them until some kind of progress is made on one of them what happens is every time one project gets difficult or you're waiting for somebody to reply or it just becomes kind of annoying in some way because you're again you know up against your your limitations you'll just bounce off onto one of the other ones right, um round in a circle, so that uh so so that you um uh, you know you never really make any progress on any of
0: them so what's the best tool to assist with that sort of chunking of a big project into little ones a regular Kanban project management manager I mean I think yeah
1: these kind of Kanban boards are all which are all the rage now. I use one inside a piece of software called notion, but there are a huge number of uh, alternatives and they just have they just um turn digital the idea of like drawing three or four columns on a notice board for sort of to do doing done whatever and moving post-its uh through the different channels and the point there is that you only allow two or three post-its into the doing column uh, yeah right from the to-do column at any one time and um you know there are um there are um, uh, multiple different ways to do it. Another very simple one is just to have two to-do lists, right? One sort of open list that you might have like 500 items on it. Who knows? You know, you just add everything to it. And then one that's sort of a closed list where you, where it has maybe like six slots or something. Yeah. And uh, you move, you move tasks from one from the long list to the short list and you don't move more than six and you don't move any more until one of them has been crossed off. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's the principle, I think, that is the most important uh thing here it's just like you are anyway only focusing on a few things in your life at any one time so it is so you might as well choose effective to be (laughs) conscious about it and then yes carry carry those things through to completion instead of just opening Um, yeah because it's a, a great way to feel like you're on top of everything when you're not really is is just to start in on 50 things mm, mm, and you're no like, totally you know then you're like hey you know i'm, I'm rocking and rolling got my irons in the fire it's so, all but actually the progress is not being made in that
0: situation yes the the idea i mean it's i used to i went through a period of of being non-digital and just having an index card and a texter or a sharpie uh and and whatever can't fit in a sharp on an index card written in sharpie is not something that i'm going to feel bad about not doing that day so that's usually about three things really and it comes off the to-do list goes on the index card and those are the things to do that day and then the next day there's a new index card now i mostly just use my calendar my online calendar to copy things across from my master to-do list to the the day that I'm actually going to do them. And then those are those things. And yeah, you're right that as long as you dramatically underestimate what you can achieve, the only time I get into trouble now is when I overestimate what I can do in a, in a day. And this brings us to another question that I wanted to get your thoughts about, which is the different psychologies of how mapped out one's day should be that, um, you know, in Sam Harris's episode of this show, he talks about how he really doesn't have a structure to his days. He, he bounces around, creatively and and temperamentally i'm very much like that as well i I like to know one or two things that i really want to have gotten done but Mm -hmm. i also like to have permission not to do them until they crop up and then if it turns out that i don't want to do them and i want to do something else and that other thing is also really useful and i'm doing that other thing as a way of procrastinating and postponing the thing that i was supposed to do that's also okay if i make the decision to embrace that that choice whereas some people find that Totally stressful and chaotic, and would much rather have a calendar where they know that okay, from ten thirty to twelve thirty, I'm doing this thing, and then from two to four, I'm doing this other thing, and that gives me certainty and structure. Whereas for me, such a calendar lands as nothing more than a a, a temptation to find a way to get out of it. <laughs> you know, and and yeah, and, no, uh, absolutely. I know what you mean. I've
1: got. I, I've got, I want to listen to uh, Sam Harris talk about how he organizes his day. I'm unreasonably obsessed with the question of how people, especially very accomplished and productive ones, uh, organise mm. their days. I think it's uh, endlessly fascinating. Yes, um, I mean, I'm I really... try. It, it's quite – you'll hear my frustration, <laughs> I
0: think, in my conversation with him because, I, I mean, I've spoken to Sam many times on my old podcast and um, and with Joe Rogan and so on. We were quite we – were, we were regular um, colleagues when I was living in L.A. And the he always I, – I don't even think he sees the problem. He's one of those people who, like – it's, I'm so envious of a brain that works that way. He's like, you know, I just, I just sort of do it because it's important. I'm like, but
1: <laughs> what kind of alien are you? Right, right. What's your system? I got to have a <laughs> exactly, system. Exactly, that's right. Um, I think you know, I, I, um, firstly, I learned and made my piece some years ago with the fact that I wasn't going to have like one approach to this that was going to be fixed for for forever um so every few months i'm changing things up and doing things uh doing things differently and i've certainly been prone in the past to trying to sort of schedule a day to within an inch of its life and then be kind of yeah instantly rebel against the uh internal um commanding officer that i have set up in mm. my brain to yell at me to do these things in this particular way also to sort of ridiculously over uh, over um claim about to myself about what I'm going to have the time to, mm. to do. Um, that said, I think that um, a certain kind of time boxing is, is something that is really useful for me, a sort of a, a basic sense of boundaries, um, both between work and non-work, and then between sort of the kind of work where I'm focusing deeply and trying to write things versus the more sort of bitty work um those kind of those kind of boundaries m- mean a lot to me so usually at the beginning of the day I will sort of map out um uh, a, a sort of a box of time for maybe three four hours of the important creative stuff which I'll we, I mean I try to do this in advance so that I don't plan meetings and stuff in those times mm. um so and then and then another chunk for sort of secondary stuff. What's important about that for me is not sort of that it absolutely happens at that time and that I need to know how it's going to go. But what's important about that is it, 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 it speaks to this idea of limitation because it puts the time first, right? It says you've got this amount of time and rather than sort of here are the 10 things that you've absolutely got to try to achieve somehow. And, you know, that just, that that puts you in a sort of a, a fight against time right and Mm -hmm. I what I want to try to it's hard to express this what I want to try to have in my own life is this kind of steadier approach where you know I'm definitely going to put in those hours and I'm going to focus during them uh, and I'm going to have some sort of intermediate goals for the day sure I'm not going to sort of just be totally drifting but but the thing that's the thing I want to sort of mentally prioritize is the idea that I keep coming back day after day and doing three or four hours yeah, on this right. creative yeah. project. And yeah. there's a wonderful quote from Adam Smith somewhere that I've I've quoted in the past. I don't have it in front of me right now, but like that the, the person who can work so moderately as to work every day, all year round or whatever, um, will sort of not only preserve his health, but also like end up producing the most amount of work right there's mm. that sort of i want to you're get you're not doing that. a very good
0: job of remembering that quote <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound nearly as articulate as adam smith probably
1: wrote it um but I there's, another the wonderful one, there's another wonderful one which i have above the, my desk but not the desk i'm sitting at now uh with um about virginia and leonard wolf again writing admittedly you know in a situation where they had servants and uh mm. parents and all sorts of things but but Writing for like three and a half hours uh every day, uh six days a week for eleven months of the year, and just talking about how Leonard Wolfus is talking about how extraordinarily much that leads to, you know. Mm. And yet it's this very sort of non-intimidating, uh eminently doable, non exhausting kind of portion of time. So that's why I'm using the, the time boxing and what I'm always trying to stop myself doing is, yeah, kind of trying to use it at such a fine-grained level that there's no freedom and room for manoeuvre and yes, end up def- failing right. at the standards that you didn't need to have set yourself in the first place. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, no, that's a really, really wise thing to, to, to remind ourselves of, I think, is because uh, I fall into the trap of, of saying, all right, I'm going to finish this one pager that I need to write, to you know, about this proposal, about this project or something. But actually... The important thing isn't finishing it if it doesn't have a deadline, the, if it's just something that I'm doing for myself, which a lot of, a lot of work at the end of the day is, uh, you know, not office work, but, I mean, all of the things that we're up to in our lives, whether they be parenting yeah. or uh, cleaning the house or whatever, there's rarely, it's really like it has to, absolutely has to be done by 2.30 this afternoon. But simply putting aside time to do that thing. Exercise is another good example. Like, you know, the only time I've gotten fit is when I've, I've carved out just the time. Don't even worry about the thing. Just the time. Yeah. Like, if you, if you commit to going to the park for 45 minutes three times a week, and then that's the battle. The battle is won. You can go to the park and sit down if you want. You can go to the park and walk <laughs> around. You can jog on the spot. You can do jumping jacks. You could take the bike. Yeah. You could go, you know, but the, the challenge is not what you do, the challenge is that you do something.
1: Yes. yes, and I think it, that also works in the sort of, you know, I'm a big fan of setting daily goals for creative work that are sort of strictly quantitative and don't um, don't get you sort of, don't trigger your sort of emotions and, yeah. like, you know, num- numbers of words. Um, uh, you know, you really do not need to write very many hundred words a day if you're able to do it every day to, to, um, to produce a huge amount. You know,
0: Although yeah. I even find the word count stressful in a way that a time count isn't like i mean i'd much rather say to myself i'm going to sit down for an hour in front of the laptop and it's not going to be connected to the internet and i'm not going to have any apps open apart from just a word doc and i can sit there for an hour and not type anything if i want to but i will do that hour my ass will sit in that chair and for an hour i will do nothing but write and if i can't write
1: anything then i have to stare at a blank cursor blinking at me for an hour (laughs) Uh, yeah i think that's yeah yeah, that would. I, I think that's a, yeah, I, I totally see that. Yeah, I mean, they're both quantitative, but the time one is even more sort of, um, it, it's again, it's being very gentle with yourself. It's saying now, you know, come along, friend. All you need yeah. to do is, to, right? That's it's right. like, it's, it's, it's so easy. the opposite it's of kind of screaming at world. yourself. Yeah, yeah just yeah. sit, sit yeah. down,
0: Sit. keep your ass in the chair and don't look, like, don't, all you have to do is not create, not put any air between your buttock and the chair. That's your only task. You can't stand up. <laughs> yes. That's that's yes. it. Um, well, that's uh, that's very good. I think. Oh yeah, the last thing I wanted to get from you is is mood is ma- the management of one's mood, especially after something like what we've what the planet has been through over the past fourteen months. What is it, fifteen months? Um, and do you get gloomy? Like I've found myself on a roller coaster ride of um, all the obvious reactions, like stress, anxiety, and And worry and but also longer stretches for really for the first time in my life of gloominess and because I have never have never experienced depression um thank god touch wood uh I don't quite know how to contextualize that I'm just sort of talking about the color draining out of things to an extent that it hadn't Mm -hmm. before and then when I managed to get on top of my time management, or I manage to exercise and do all of the things that I that one knows intellectually, one should be doing, I recover. But of Mm -hmm. course, as anyone who has suffered depression knows, (laughs) you, you know, intellectually what you should do, but you can't find the motivation to do them. So it doesn't necessarily matter that you know that you should go that you'd feel better if you went for a run, you don't go for a run. How do you think about that conundrum?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm definitely on the I was going to say the anxiety end of the spectrum rather than the depression one, although they do Mm. go together and it's not really a a spectrum. But um, so, you know, one of my first very strange epiphanies of of lockdown was, you know, I spent the first two weeks of our lives changing because of COVID, feeling incredibly anxious and sort of in a sort of bodily way. And then as all the news began to come in, even though it was very bad, I suddenly realised that I had been carrying not just for those two weeks, but through my whole life, a sort of a sense of sort of impending apocalypse that was so extreme that when um, that when bad things started to happen and the death toll started mounting and, you know, I don't want to, you know, for anyone who's lost someone close to them to COVID, it, it's very sort of dicey territory, I understand. But like everything that happened was finite. Everything that happened was not the apocalypse and the world mm. going up in a ball of flames. And so every day I would be like, oh, Oh, it's actually not as bad as I. So I was. So I found something. I had a very strange experience of being sort of turned from a a defensive pessimist into a slightly more of an optimist. just (laughs) Just because you know the world did seem to stumble on through this uh, through this stuff and lots and lots and lots of things did not collapse. Yes, and, I don't uh, remember if we talked um,
0: about this last time, Oliver, but I had the same experience in the, sen- <laughs> in the sense that I had, through my science connections and being a bit of a, a data wonk, I had tweaked to the magnitude of this, maybe three or four weeks before other people did. And so I was chicken little screaming from the rooftops and going to the supermarket and stocking up and trying to explain to people that their trip to Bali in April was not going to happen. And and everyone thought I was an idiot uh, and being hysterical. And so then when everything started going to hell, in March, it was a sense of enormous relief. Like I, I don't have to be that guy anymore, and I don't have like here we go. Let's it's like yes, you're at the right, crest of right, the roller yes. coaster. We're all on it together, yeah. so let's see what yeah. happens. But at least I don't have to I have to be the only person worrying any, now. and I felt less worry.
1: And then yeah, I, and no, absolutely. And but I don't want to neglect the question about sort of low mood and gloom and stuff. And I think that you know, um, th- on the sort of. Uh, abstract level i want to talk about how you know these are not feelings that people should be feeling like they have to eliminate and and uh, you know all the things you might expect me to say about taking a sort of gentler approach to them when it comes to practical things i think that what works for so many people in that kind of situation is just to radically radically narrow the time horizon of um what you're what you're hoping to do so you know um a technique that I've seen in I've written about and seen called various things in various places is this is a productivity technique. When you are deeply in a rut, take out a notebook or a piece of paper, write down one thing that, that that you're going to do, do it, cross it out. And when you feel ready, write down another thing, do that mm. thing. And, and like really do not think beyond that. I, there's a, there's a line in, um, uh, various people objected when I quoted Jordan Peterson in something I wrote a while ago because people oh, objected to Jordan them. Peterson. But um, he writes in his first book, Twelve Rules for Life. Um, I, again, I'm not quoting verbatim, but like you know, as a as a technique for getting out of a rut, like ask yourself what is one thing that you could do and that you would do that would leave your life um, less chaotic and more orderly <laughs> uh, by the end of the day. Um, of which, you know, tidy your room is the, is the great cliche in mm, uh, mm. Jordan Peterson land, but it could be anything. You know, um, tidying up is a very vivid example of this because it sort of is a sort of imposing of a little bit of order on chaos. Um, do that thing and then reward yourself with a fancy espresso or a bar of chocolate. And I mean, it's just that incredibly, it's, that, it's, that the, it's getting to that level that is so small that you're in the realm of like okay what could i do and i would do yeah and right. maybe it isn't um adopt a new uh exercise regime for the next month but maybe it is get mm. outside into the sun for walk around five the minutes block and yeah. you know yeah. all we're ever doing anyway in life is one action followed by another action so you know pretty <laughs> swiftly pretty swiftly you're uh you're into something that at least has some movement in it then
0: that's really good, isn't it? It almost reminds me of uh, of Tiny Habits, BJ Fogg's uh, yep. system, where you know he talks about the way to build habits is to just pick the tiniest, most in- incremental habit, so that you know when you brush your teeth in the morning, do one push up, and you're not allowed to mm-hmm. do any more than one. But you know yeah. you, you start there, and then it gradually gradually builds. Um, that's great, Oliver. Do you want to touch on anything else before we uh, before I bid you adieu to encourage people to to buy the book?
1: No, I don't think so. Wow, we covered a lot of. Uh... We did. We we covered a lot of territory. Yeah,
0: it's always great to talk to you. I hope you have a wonderful time in the move to the UK, and that it's everything you could have dreamed of. So, are you going in September? Uh, Yes, we are. Just for just three year, but yes, we are. Yeah, you'll hope. It's kind of a bit of a shame that you miss out on the summer, but I suppose you'll get a beautiful autumn.
1: I'm rather looking forward to uh, winter in Yorkshire. My, uh, my partner is maybe not. but um, <laughs> <I am. laughs> That's
0: true. That's consistent with your mood, sort of wandering around the grey moors, uh, gazing wistfully yeah, at man. the clouds. Oh. <laughs> thanks, mate. Great to talk to you as always.
1: And you. Thanks very much.